Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Netflix Australia film and TV licensing and co-productions lead Nakul Ligar about the kind of content he's looking for. Packed Chief Executive John McVeigh on the UK indie trade body's 30th anniversary and the privatisation of Channel 4. And ABC Australia Head of Drama, Entertainment and Indigenous Sally Riley discusses her current commissioning strategy and programming needs. C21's Content Australia On Demand got underway last week with a series of panel discussions and one-on-one interviews exploring how the nation's television business is evolving in a period of unprecedented change. Nakul Lega leads film and television licensing and co-productions for the Netflix Australia and New Zealand content team and is also a creative executive on the streamer's local original slate. Before joining Netflix, Lega was in business and legal affairs at the ABC, where he worked on commissioning, development, talent and acquisitions across scripted, factual and entertainment. He's worked closely on Screen Australia's comedy initiatives and the ABC's diversity and inclusion strategies and was previously a lawyer specialising in media and entertainment and intellectual property. He spoke to Don Groves about the kind of programming Netflix is looking for and its ambitions to become the first port of call for creators with Australian stories to tell. Here's the first part of their conversation. Nicole, thanks for joining us. First off, could you explain your role and how you interface with uh, producers, uh, filmmakers and uh, distributors? Sure, yeah. So um, I'm part of the content team for Netflix Australia and New Zealand. We're based here in Sydney on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. That's where I'm speaking from today. Um, and my role, as Don, you've got it, um, managing licensing and co-productions for ANZ. I'm also a creative executive on our set of regional commissions. And the team as a whole, it's Cumin Liu, who's the director of content. We've got Hannah Pembroke, who joined very recently, and me. Uh, the three of us, we, we're doing the full gamut of licensing films and series from distributors, taking pictures and developing projects from creators and producers, commissioning and overseeing projects across a whole range of genres and, 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 and formats. So um, we're trying to do it all. Um, and and it's, it's a real honor and a privilege to be part of the team here on the ground. That's a very small team, which I think uh, Q has described as uh, scrappy, uh, <laughs> handling a, a vast uh, volume of work. How are you coping with all that? Well, I think I think this is a great opportunity for me uh, to apologise to anyone whose email is outstanding that we haven't responded to yet. Uh, bear with us. Um, it is well, it's a small team, but um, that's part of the Netflix ethos. Really, is it's scrappy, uh, but we're always pushing the boundaries of what we can do and what we can achieve. Um, so we, we're just getting on with it. Um, and I think what we're also stoked about, you know, the three of us, we feel so incredibly in a position of such privilege, um, to be given the opportunity to make, um, Australian content for Netflix. So that's just keeping us going. But I do need to apologize to anyone who is still waiting for a response. We will get back to you. Uh, Q Min says that Netflix is looking for uh, formats and ideas that have not been seen on uh, free to air TV and, uh, as she puts it, commercial with a twist. Can you elaborate on that and also uh, discuss how that shapes the way your team is dealing with uh, creatives? Yeah, sure. Um, So for us, um, I think it's a really unique opportunity to make versions of Australian stories that are at home on a global stage and at home on a bingeable streaming service like Netflix. And I think what's special about a Netflix show is the ability to combine often quite unique, challenging, surprising stories that are also really mainstream and commercially accessible. Um, and I'm, and it's a quote that I mentioned before, I'm going to butcher it, but um, the animator Miyazaki uh, talks about this is content that has very few barriers to entry and really big, wide open doors to invite a large audience in. Um, but then there's work to be done to find the exits, you know, through as emotional complexity, depth and heart. Um, so for us, we want to find and develop shows that have this in their DNA. And they also have in their DNA things that make a typical Netflix show, like the like a compelling hook, of pacing, story twists and turns. Uh, so that's really what we mean by commercial with a twist. Um, the other part of what we're looking for uh, in our shows is uh, content that's really distinctly Australian. Um, and that speaks to tone, voice and setting. Uh, we're finding as the company is regionalizing and localizing and you know, we've now got offices in places like Mumbai, Madrid, Paris. There's a recognition that the best stories are really specific to a place, a time, and a people. And um, for us, the goal that we have is to make distinctly Aussie, Aussie stories that please our ANZ members first and foremost. Um, so creators, you know, what we say to creators all the time is 
don't feel the need to water down your stories to um, make them accessible to a global audience. Um, it's really that hyperlocality that allows our content and our shows to resonate with audiences. I mean, I think there is a real joy that audiences find in seeing their experiences reflected on screen. Um, and it's why we see shows like Lupin and Money Heist or Indian Matchmaking, which is a personal favorite of mine, um, being of Indian background, um, succeed so well all around the world, even though they're so specific to um, a cultural context. Thank you. Uh, you've licensed a very uh, broad slate of, uh, of uh, material, uh, including classic TV shows like Tibbity Blues, Gallipoli and Round the Twist, and iconic movies like Breaker, Morant and Malcolm. Also, so uh, recent Australian movies, including Lou Geeg's I Met a Girl, Seth Larney's 2067 and Paul Ireland's Me- Measure for Measure were released as Netflix originals here and worldwide. So what was your criteria in deciding which, which shows to pick, pick up? We want to be the place for the best stories from Australia and from around the world. And uh, our colleagues from around the world are doing an amazing job at bringing the best of the rest of the world to our shores. Uh, and for us locally, we're obviously focused on commissioning new content, uh, but we also want to build a library of iconic films and series that are part of our shared cultural heritage. Um, and we've been seeing with licensed shows like you mentioned Round the Twist, Puberty Blues and Monkey Magic, um, a real joy for our members, um, seeing these familiar faces and cultural markers that they grew up with or that remind them of their childhoods or their teenage years on Netflix. Um, and it's also, I think, um, for me, people like me who didn't grow up in Australia, uh, a chance for new audiences that might not have gotten a chance to see our rich tapestry of films and series um, because they haven't been made available so broadly until now. Um, and I, you know, for me, I've, it's, I've been on a learning journey getting across Bruce Beresford's work. Um, David Gothel's um, first film that he ever did, Walkabout from 1971, that's on Netflix now. Nicole Kidman's first movie, BMX Bandits. Um, some of these, they've been the archives, they've just been remastered. Um, so that's been really exciting to have that sitting on Netflix alongside, you know, all the big global hits from around the world. Um, we're also, as you mentioned, Don, um, getting new content in uh, as a, movies like Romance in the Menu in 2067 and releasing them as Netflix originals. Um, we're also licensing um, Aussie films that had limited theatrical because of COVID, like Storm Ashwood's uh, Escape uh, and Invasion. And there's a Parkway Drive feature documentary that's coming up. Um, and, you know, what we've seen, um, the audience response to those has been so positive because it's one of the first times they're seeing an Aussie version of genre films like sci-fi. And 267, for example, was just, um, you know, it was in the top 10 um, movies in Netflix ANZ for, for a whole number of days. Uh, and that, I think, was a great sign for us and, and a sign of confidence in what we want to do here in creating Aussie stories for Netflix. On a personal note, uh, you said you hailed from India. I think you came here when you were 10 years old. Uh, and I think Play School was one of the first shows you watched. Yes, yes, I watched. I watched that well into high school. Um, I did. I had no sense of what Play School was. Ta- who Play School was targeted at? I was um, learning English. We came here when I was ten, and um, yeah, look, I came from a country, uh, Bhutan, where television was actually banned um, from the time that we were there. And so when we migrated when I was 10, I just, it was like um, the tap had just been turned on and I just immersed myself in all things TV. So I was watching um, about the twist, play school, but also watching things like The Dream or NHG show when uh, they did during the Olympics. Um, and that's really how I kind of tapped into and under- tried to understand the culture that we just moved into. And um, I was also really active on a, on a TV ratings forum uh, called TV Oz. Don, I think maybe, maybe you know it. Um, I was very active on there. I was a moderator. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I <laughs> it's um, TV kind of was the way that I figured out my place in, in Australia. Uh, you started your career as an intellectual property and media lawyer, I think as a way to break into the TV business because you didn't know anybody there. Uh, and after working with uh, with Q at the ABC, uh, where you negotiated uh, deals for uh, scripted and non-scripted programs across all platforms, it was there where you realised you had a, a knack of, of uh, spotting good stories. And I think uh, Q asked for your opinion on uh, Wakefield, this uh, drama set in a psychiatric uh, hospital, uh, the ABC. And uh, you must have had some pretty good uh, input on that. And she thought, yes, you, you're just the guy to uh, to join her at Netflix when she eventually made the move. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, look, that was... You know, you, you try and put your best foot forward and do your best work whenever you can, whatever role you're in. And, and you just never know when that stays with someone down the line. And, um, but I've got to say, um, going back a few before that, even I, I, 
I've always been trying to find opportunities to be around storytelling right from when I was watching play school. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, there was you know, a balancing that need um, to deliver on, on the migrant sacrifice of my parents and, and of, of delivering financial stability and, 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 and being successful in the traditional sense. And so that's why I studied law. But in that time, I was editor of the student paper at university. And there I just got such a thrill from chasing stories and, and finding new angles on, 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 on stuff we were making for students. Um, when I was a media lawyer and litigator, I mean, a lot of litigating is uh, finding a way to tell a compelling story from your client's perspective. Um, and then, of course, I made my way to the ABC. Uh, but I, I think the important thing um, that I've discovered is you may feel like you have that knack and a passion, but it can be really difficult when you want to enter an industry like, like this um, where there are barriers to entry and maybe you don't have the personal connections like I certainly didn't um, or you need financial security so you can't necessarily do those unpaid internships and do your time in the mind so to speak um, and maybe you don't see many people who look like you occupying those uh, decision-making spaces um, and so you do start thinking maybe you don't belong there you know and often you need someone to recognize that in you and I've had a few lucky enough to have a few great mentors over the years and um, in particular Q um, she's had a similar journey in her career and and took a bet on me um, uh, to, you know when and I came over to Netflix and um, I'm very excited to be working with her over here right let's talk about the first uh, Netflix original uh, commissions um, heartbreak high which is a reboot of the gritty high school uh, drama series that screened for seven seasons I think on Network 10 and the ABC in the 1980s and uh, Byron Bays uh, first how are you you and uh, Fremantle ensuring that the new heartbreak high uh, resonates and will appeal to today's viewers who probably never saw the original or don't even know it exists? Yeah, that's a fair point. And look, I've, I've got a, a scoop for you, Don. Um, I, I have actually never watched Heartbreak High. Um, I didn't grow up with it. It wasn't in my cultural context. I was too busy watching play school. Um, so it really is, it's audiences like me, um, who might not have grown up with it and younger than me, who just have no familiarity with it. Um, we are looking at that next generation of the young adult audience. Um, and I think, um, YA, as we've seen on this, on our service is something that Aussie members just love to watch. Um, and while we think that coming of age, you know, there are a lot of things in there that are really universal. Uh, being a teen in 2021, 2022 in Australia, in New Zealand is really unique. And it's not something that teens here get to see on screen all that much. Um, so we are make, we're doing our homework. We're making sure through, you know, social insights, consumer research to make sure it's this culturally relevant right down to the sneakers, the needle drops, the music, everything that's in that show. Um, and, and we're so excited. It's going really well, and I can't wait for you to see it next year. Now, Byron Bays is a very different show, uh, a docu-soap from uh, Eureka Productions, which looks at the influencer culture in Byron Bay, which for our overseas viewers uh, is a town on the New South Wales far north coast, uh, which has a lot of uh, ostentatiously rich people, but also uh, very high levels of homelessness. Uh, when the show was announced, it got a lot of flack from Byron Bay locals who just saw the press release and that's all they knew and they jumped to conclusions about what it would be or what it wouldn't be. Uh, what makes this a Netflix show? Yeah, look, I, I can understand the sentiment um, in some parts. There, there is a version of reality TV that can be jarring and it can make people feel a little unsettled. Um, but I also personally think reality is one of the most universal and relatable genres of television and there's an incredible craft that goes into it. And I think the version of reality that uh, we at Netflix, um, I think, are best in class at doing is these really incredible, what we call docu-soaps. And Byron Bay's is really a docu-soap um, that takes you into worlds and spaces that seem really far-fetched and really out of reach, um, but they're filled with incredibly memorable and relatable characters with universal storylines. And um, to my mind, Bling Empire is a perfect example of that. That's a show that is um, set in the Asian-American, wealthy Asian-American community in L.A., that is a world that I have no familiarity with, um, and yet I found myself moved to tears when there was a storyline in there about someone trying to have a child through IVF, someone trying to reconnect with their father um, who had left the family 20 years ago. Uh, and I think that's the same um, approach that we're taking to Byron Bay. So on, on the surface, uh, you're entering a world that seems to be about image, lifestyle, curation. But once uh, you get to know these people and these characters and the town itself and the change that it's going through, um, I, I can't wait for audiences to find out the truly human and moving stories that are that are behind um, the facade of it. 
In uh, Netflix's submission to the government's uh, media reform green paper, uh, the company argues that imposing a local content quota, which the government proposes, on streaming services would risk damaging the local industry permanently. Uh, why is Netflix so concerned that a quota would be uh, so destructive? So I, I'm not a, I gotta say, I'm not a policy head. Um, so I, I'll answer this from a, a content perspective. Um, uh, within the content team, um, I've got to be honest, we rarely, if ever, think about quotas as a reason for doing what we do. Um, our focus is on just on finding and developing the best Australian stories and working with talented creators here at home. Uh, and we are doing that because we think it's important, both culturally, um, from an audience perspective, because we think our members will love it. And I think it just makes business sense to do that. Um, the more and more content that you see coming in from around the world, I think there is a desire at a certain point for Australian audiences to want to see their stories reflected back at them um, on a platform like Netflix. And that's how we do it. Um, and Q&I uh, background is, as you mentioned on earlier, um, from the ABC. And so we are firm believers in the importance of protecting, of furthering, of nurturing the Australian screen culture and screen industry. Um, and we're the only international streaming service with a, with a full-time content team here on the ground. Um, we are so invested in this um, and we'll continue to do that. Um, our submission speaks to, as you mentioned, you know, um, it speaks to the overall objective and we support it, which is to create a framework that does benefit the credit sector in Australia. Um, and we're just trying to think about what is the most sustainable way to do that. Uh, we don't want to necessarily inflate rates. Um, we don't want to exacerbate crew and studio shortages that are already happening. Uh, we really want to be a rising tide and we support uh, free-to-air networks, public broadcasters, um, and other streamers who are coming here and investing in Aussie stories like never before, because at the end of the day, that's more money, more skills, more investment in Aussie creators, and that is the most important thing for us. Good, good point. Uh, Netflix's uh, chief, Ted Sarandos, uh, has uh, often stressed the importance of inclusive content on the platform, which uh, nonetheless has uh, mainstream appeal. So how is that playing out in the shows that you are developing and the licensing? Yeah, um, so for us, it's so important um, from that inclusion and diversity perspective that those stories aren't just seen and classified as niche stories. Uh, rather, they are compelling stories with characters that have nuance and texture and, and a cultural context, but they can be embraced and beloved by all our members. And I really think it can be a disservice to creators to say your story only fits this box and it can only meet an audience of this size. Um, we want to set a really high benchmark for, of excellence and of audience appeal um, that extends to stories that come from um, diverse perspectives. And um, an example that, that we always often talk about um, is Never Have I Ever, which is a Mindy Kaling show on Netflix. Uh, that's ultimately it's a story about a teen finding her way through high school, but she happens to be Indian. And there's great nuance and there's great texture around her cultural heritage, but that isn't the story. Uh, and we've seen that show do so well all around the world. And so for our team, um, we're really bringing this to everything that we do from the projects that are being pitched, who is pitching them, um, how we staff our writers' rooms, what kind of traineeships and opportunities we can make available to the next generation of talent. Um, we recently, you know, we went through, we did a talent hub uh, with Banya that was to link up Indigenous creatives with Hollywood executives to develop their projects. And uh, we've got a really exciting announcement coming up on that front soon. Uh, I know you've got a very big uh, development slate. Um, can you tell me roughly how many pitches you and Q get on, a, on say, on an average month? Look, it's uh, daunting is, is, <laughs> is the numerical value I'd put on that. Um, but it's, it's daunting, but it's also really exciting um, just to see how many talented creators um, that are out there in the industry, but it is, yes, um, can be a lot. Uh, are you funding uh, writers' rooms, the writing of Bibles and that kind of thing to, yeah, to progress yeah. projects? Yeah. Yes, so uh, projects are coming in at, at all different stages. Sometimes it's just a, it's a synopsis, it's, it's a five to ten page deck, and, and from that, you know, we think there's a really compelling world and we will fund the next stage of development, set up a writer's room, get a Bible going, maybe a pilot script. Um, but it might be that some projects are coming in and they've already got a script and it's really about what's the next iteration. Um, and we are so open and so flexible to making it work. What's really important for us is we move quickly and we give writers certainty. Uh, I think there is um, 
there is sometimes writers can experience an issue of having to just juggle multiple projects because they're stuck in limbo land, they're stuck in options that last 18 months, 24 months. And we want to make sure that once we get you into development, um, we can move really quickly and get you going on, on the project. I think your advice to content creators who want to pitch uh, shows is to uh, first attach an established uh, producer if they haven't already and perhaps get an agent and also uh, if they want to send you a script, it shouldn't be any more than five or ten pages, so you can quickly assess whether you want to uh, move forward. Yeah, so um, the reason we say to attach a producer or an agent um, to your pitches gives us an understanding of your ability to execute uh, and a proof of your point of view um, and, and, and your yeah, the perspective that you're bringing to the project. So um, we ask, drop us a line if you've got that sorted with a synopsis um, and we like that, the next step would be a, 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 a five to ten page deck is fine. I mean, if you've got a script, that's awesome. Um, but otherwise, just an uh, overview of what you're trying to do, uh, and then we can take it from there. Um, but I also want to, you know, I want to acknowledge that not everyone uh, will have access to a producer or an agent, um, and I, I understand that. That's hard. Um, and so we ask instead, go out there and perform your work, whether that's putting on a theatre show um, or do iterations of your vision on other platforms like web series. And trust us, we are always looking. Um, and if if we can't bring you in for the for the project that you want to do for Netflix, we'll certainly keep you in mind for a writer's room or to develop you in another way. Um, you know, you should also, my message to creators is build a relationship with your screen agency. Uh, get onto a development program. You know, they, they're, um, our screen agencies in Australia do such incredible work investing in the next generation of talent. And we often are asked to sit in pitching rooms at the end of those development programs. So um, we're always keeping an eye on that. Um, our screen agency contacts are always filtering up talent to us that have a unique point of view. Uh, and that's ultimately what we really care about. So as you said, you'd like to make a fairly quick decisions. You don't want uh, writers or producers spending 18 months or longer on development uh, because you think uh, there should be more impetus uh, and you shouldn't have writers sort of um, uh, having a prolonged process before you decide yes or no on projects. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, you know, we want um, we want this to be a partnership, a collaboration. Um, we're trying to move away from a model of um a sense of like you're servicing a network. Uh, we really want to support our creators um, and set them up for success because uh, they're ultimately they're the best people to tell the stories that we're investing in. Um, and so one of the one of the issues can be that um, writers don't feel they have the certainty, and we want to make sure we can give them that comfort and that financial security upfront. So it's a very collaborative process. I think uh, UNQ um, often uh, want to challenge content creators on uh, on the points that they're making or the way their shows are structured. Uh, you like that that those exchanges to get the best possible result. Well, look, it's it's a healthy partnership, um, but I, I should say it, we believe in our creators to be the best people to tell the stories. Um, and what we what we do in our in our kind of process of collaboration is um, have a healthy dialogue that isn't just about um, isn't always about just presenting the solution, but really working through the problem, about ideating, about working through and solving the issues that are coming up, whether that's in development, whether that's in um, in in production. Uh, and what we can bring to the table is um, a, a network of experts within Netflix who know what our members enjoy, what works on the service. Um, now that can be things like color grading, edits, or consumer insights um, to help make that show the best version possible and, and always drive towards uh, creative excellence. Um, but ultimately, you know, the reason creators come to work with Netflix is because we give them um, the latitude uh, and, and the platform to tell the story in the way that they want to. So you're just as happy to work with emerging writers as uh, as established writers? Oh, absolutely. We are always on the lookout for um, emerging writers. Uh, I think what's really important is um, the solution isn't just finding an emerging writer and putting them in a writer's room. Um, there is uh, care uh, that needs to be, and, and an ecosystem and, and, and a kind of a, a support network that needs to be placed when someone maybe hasn't worked in a writer's room before, maybe they haven't written a script on their own before. Um, there is work to be done um, to make sure that they, they are set up for success. And I think that's part of the process that can often be forgotten when we talk about pathways for the next generation of creatives. So um, it, it takes longer, it, it's, it takes more work, but we think it's, it's really important that we are investing just as much time um, in setting them up for success as we are in our established creators. Right. I know you're keen to find uh, compelling documentaries that can sit on the service alongside the uh, scripted uh, content. I think as an example, you cited uh, Olivia Martin Maguire's China Love, uh, produced by Media Stockade, which uh, delves into the booming billion-dollar industry of pre-wedding photography 
photography shoots in China, all things. Must confess I haven't seen it, but I'm sure it's compelling. So, so uh, I assume you've got the documentary producers beating a path uh, to your door as well as uh, drama producers? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, we, we are format agnostic. Um, we really follow where the stories are. And um, often, you know, sometimes we get pitch stories uh, that, are, that are scripted series and we ask, and they're based on a true story. And and, and we do ask the question, oh, what about the true story itself? Why don't we explore that more? Um, because as you know, Don, on, on the service, our documentaries, they sit right next to our scripted content uh, because ultimately um, they're just as compelling, just as interesting and complex. And we find that the same audiences that are watching juicy, soapy, scripted stories are also cooking onto documentaries. There isn't the distinction that perhaps there used to be um, back in the day when documentaries were in the dusty corner of, of, of the video store and, you know, you had the Hollywood action blockbusters. Audiences um, respond equally um, joyfully to both. Um, so for us, um, What's really important is that compelling hook, that accessibility, uh, and that narrative. Um, you know, be driven by the story and be confident that the cause and the social impact will be fleshed out in the texture and in the depth of the storytelling. Are you finding you have to be more proactive in uh, looking for projects given that, uh, as you know, Amazon Prime uh, has an increasing uh, presence in Australia and uh, Viacom uh, CBS is launching uh, Paramount Plus in August, so there's more and more competition amongst the international uh, streamers yeah look it's it's a seller's market and so we have to be we have to get out there and, and pitch ourselves as well we have to make sure that creators are excited to work with us that we're finding new voices and new talent um i think it's the best thing to happen the australian screen industry uh the demand there is for aussie talent aussie stories um but yeah it means we've got to be more proactive than ever uh, as uh, Netflix said in its submission to the government, however, we do have a problem in a, a lack of studio space and also there are skills uh, shortages uh, with so much production happening uh, concurrently. So Netflix would like to see uh, more emphasis on skills and training and uh, the building of new studios. Well, the, the, the next stage, I mean, I can't speak to the specifics of, again, that's a policy question, but certainly we are finding um, it is it's challenging, you know, with the volume of inbound productions, with the volume of productions already happening here, um, it's hard to find uh, space. Uh, it's, it's, it's a competition to secure crew and talent. Um, and so that means looking forward into the next five to 10 years about how we build the capacity and the infrastructure in our Australian screen industry so that we're set up for the long haul. Um, and our submission and, and what we're doing here in Australia speaks to that. It's about having a sustainable presence. Um, we don't want to come here, um, blow you know, um, standard market rates and, and, and expectations out of the water for a short-term gain but no long-term benefit. Um, and one of the things that we're seeing that's coming out of this process is a real emphasis on training the next generation of creators. And um, I think, you know, it's been driven by uh, a necessity, but there's also a desire certainly in our team to make sure we are setting the platform for success um, for up-and-coming creators, writers, borderline crew, and we are um, equipping, you know, we're, we're recruiting our shows like Heartbreak High and Byron Bays. We're making sure that we're bringing in new faces and new talent so that they're around for the long haul um, because we want to be here for the long haul as well. So with so much in development and with your creative ambitions, I think we can expect some more announcements soon on um, Netflix Originals. Yes, we've got a few really cool things coming up. Um, and, you know, it's a chance for us to experiment across genre and format to see uh, what clicks with our audience. And you've seen that, you know, we had we announced a really exciting, edgy um, young adult show like Heartbreak High and the docuserp like Byron Bay. So there's a lot of diversity, a lot of different formats coming up. And uh, we're super excited to share that with our audiences soon. UK independent producers Trade Body Pact has played an integral role in helping transform the nation's production sector from a cottage industry into a multi-million dollar global powerhouse. The organisation is celebrating its 30th anniversary, having lobbied successive governments to introduce a legal framework envied around the world, allowing UK indies to retain rights to their programmes, exploit them on the global stage and maximise their values. Chief Executive John McVeigh spoke to me about these achievements, the challenges producers are facing as a result of the pandemic, government proposals to sell off public broadcaster Channel 4, EU plans to limit the amount of British programming on European TV screens, and much more.
John, uh, congratulations. It's 30 years of PACT, the uh, UK Producers Trade Association. It's, it's quite a milestone, so happy birthday. A lifetime of lobbying, really, I suppose, for you. So working with six different governments and many more culture secretaries. Before we talk about the present moment, just take us back, if you would, to uh, 1991 when the organisation was established. And, you know, particularly for those who might not be familiar with the UK market, what did the TV landscape looked like back then and what was the reason for establishing PACT? Well, the landscape was a, a very different one. The main market that we had was basically Channel 4, uh, which had been set up in the early 80s uh, and had was set up as a publisher broadcaster, not allowed to make its own programming. And it was a real booster to the indie sector. However, by the time we got to 1991, um, that was probably the only broadcaster you could work with, uh, the BBC a little bit. Uh, and then PACT campaigned successfully uh, for the 1991 Broadcasting Act to include a quota of 25% on all public service broadcasters. Uh, and that led to the creation of uh, PACT, which was bringing together the Film Producers Association and the TV Producers Association. That's why our name is the Producers Alliance for Cinema and Television. Uh, so it was really on because the market was opened up uh, by regulation. So it was a minimum of 25%. Uh, and that clearly led to more income, um, uh, more fees. Uh, PACT was set up um, really to respond to a growing sector and also the needs to service that sector for business affairs, collective agreements and all the other things that we do to this day to help uh, independent producers. And what was the sort of scale of the industry then? And I guess the, the fundamental change that you helped instigate, one of them in particular, was um, helping transform the sector from essentially work for hire into you know a, a whole sort of framework of legislation that essentially allowed independent producers to retain rights to their programmes and, and sell them on the global stage. I mean, that was a really a, a turning point. Yeah, I mean, we were, I mean, until until 2003, when that legislation was introduced, I mean, PACT had tried unsuccessfully for quite a few years to convince the regulators, uh, as was, um, to do something about IP and who owned the copyright of the programmes, um, because we were effectively a service sector and we had, you know, 30 1,400 companies, uh, margins were controlled by the broadcasters, your budgets were controlled by the broadcasters. If you had to go somewhere and, and spend overnights, they would then quibble with you on what the cost of an overnight was. So effectively, we were, you know, we were, as I, I when I started, I said, well, the problem is we're in a soup kitchen uh, and the, the buyers decide how much soup we get and also decide whether we get a bit of bread that goes with it as well. So while we were making great programs and they were taking the benefits, uh, as, as a sector, we were uninvestable. We were being driven down by our budgets being managed to lower and lower margins, uh, and it wasn't sustainable. So um, thankfully, um, you know, we had a brilliant board uh, of members uh, when I started in uh, 2001, uh, led by the amazing Beryl Virtue and then Eileen Gallagher, uh, and we mounted a campaign to change all that so that we could get control of the programmes that we made and then licensed to the broadcasters. And uh, the sectors never looked back. Um, in 2001, revenues, total revenues for 1,400 companies was around about 700 million. Uh, now we have about 700 members, uh, revenues 3.2 billion. So it's been transformative uh, because we, we can exploit our IP and we can be rewarded for our creativity and the risk we take. So um, TV exports, even even last year, I mean, that, that was the first year that they surpassed the, the billion pound mark. 2020 was obviously a, a a very tough year as well in, in every respect for, for everybody and, and PACT was instrumental in helping put together a series of protocols, COVID protocols that allowed companies to get back to work. But just how hard has the sector been hit, the independent production sector, by the pandemic that we're, we're all still experiencing? Yeah, well, like like everyone else, last March, the, you know, the lights were switched off. We had to stop production, not because we were instructed to stop production by the government. We were never... Um, subject to that but because we couldn't work safely so I mean packed along with all the broadcasters the British Film Commission the BFI the industry really got its act together to get protocols worked through 
so that we could get people on set in production and comply with the instructions from government that to make sure that we were doing that safely in, in light of the, the rules around the pandemic and social distancing. So that, that took some time. The other big problem we had was um, we couldn't get production insurance. So a lot of production had stopped, but it couldn't restart because it couldn't get insurance. Some did have pre-existing insurance which would cover them, but any new productions couldn't raise insurance. So uh, PACT led on the campaign to convince the government to set up the restart scheme, which is an indemnity fund that uh, basically uh, you can claim against if you have to suspend or abandon a film or TV project um, due to COVID. So any losses you have, you can then claim back from the British taxpayer. And that has really restarted the industry. And, you know, we're at levels of production in the UK now in excess of where we were last March, which uh, this time last year, no one would have thought that was possible. So, um, you know, I think the recovery is going well. We've still got some way to go. We're still managing, you know, COVID costs on top of budgets. That won't change until we get new instructions from government about any relaxation of uh, social distancing. So there's still, you know, it's still a heavy burden. But I'm really pleased that, you know, our audiovisual uh, industry is back up and running uh, and, and booming again, which uh, is good news. Sadly, not the case for many of our friends in theatre and live music. Uh, uh, and I hope that changes soon. The other major story of the moment is obviously the, the government's proposal to privatise Channel 4, an organisation which is going to be celebrating its 40th birthday next year. You've said you're thoroughly opposed to this, but um, again, for the uninitiated, just explain your reasons why. Well, Channel 4 was set up by Margaret Thatcher, and ironically, the minister who's now exploring that was working with Margaret Thatcher at the time in, in the early 80s, John Whittingdale, um, who, who I know and respect. But, you know, Channel 4 was set up with a very clear purpose. It was there to do different programming that the other channels wouldn't do. It was there to bring competition to the advertising market because ITV was a dominant in that market. Uh, and it was there to help to develop and grow the independent sector. So it was set up as a publisher broadcaster uh, and, and it's never been allowed to make uh, its own programming. That didn't stop it uh, trying to own and control the programming that Indies made for it, which it did until uh, we brought in the terms of trade. Um, but Channel 4 uh, also has had, uh, uh, in the past 10 years, uh, you know, a remit to spend more of its money out of London. That's helped to develop uh, opportunities and access from more diverse companies, uh, companies from different parts of the UK, which is important. And the problem is that, you know, Channel 4 is effectively a not-for-profit. All the money it makes goes back into its programming, which means it goes back into independent companies, which means it goes back into jobs, creativity, skills, uh, global growth. Those are all really, really positive things for the UK economy, both financially and culturally. So anything which we uh, seek to damage that, we're very concerned about. Because if someone's going to buy it, they're going to want, want to get their money back and then they're going to want to take profits. Um, so the money that previously would have all gone into programming will now go to shareholders. And if those shareholders are American or German or French, that money is going to go out of the UK rather into UK companies and UK IP. Uh, so it doesn't seem to be a very good return on the public support for Channel 4 uh, over the nearly 40 years since it was created. Um, and uh, we, we fear it'd be very damaging to smaller companies. Uh, if they take away the remit and allow it to go into production itself, then that means it'll close down opportunities for those small startups who might you know, begin their career with Channel 4 doing something for all four or a digital channel before moving on to the main channel and then maybe making something for one of the other broadcasters. So we, we fear there's a lot of benefits there that, that could be damaged or, or indeed just completely stopped. I mean, Viacom bought out Channel 5 seven years ago. Is there not a sort of a, a model that you could see by which Channel 4 comes under foreign ownership or, or ownership of another UK company whereby it could still deliver those benefits to the UK? We, we would want to see the detail of that. I mean, so far we've seen no evidence, no analysis, no market impact assessment that's been produced by government in order for us to properly assess how, that, how it would be better. I mean, I think if you're going to sell something off, even if the rationale is that Channel 4 needs more capital, I think you also need to be pretty confident uh, that it's going to be better going forward, not status quo or worse. <laughs> so, and we we are not convinced of that yet. I'm not saying we wouldn't be convinced, but, you know, we, we, we think that the, the, I mean, the, the British broadcasting system, the PSB system that we have, is a very complex,
complex uh, ecology. And you have to be really careful if you start pulling at one thread in it, you know what you're doing and you know what the consequences are, both intended and unintended. Um, just, you know, going blindly ahead without real thought can unravel a lot of the, the great things that we have. I mean, we are the world's second largest audiovisual economy. We're the second largest exporter. We're a place which is admired around the globe for our quality of programming, for our talent, for our creativity. Uh, and, you know, we don't want to lose that. It's been decades of building that up. Uh, and, you know, I'm very proud of the industry that we have. We, we don't want to damage that. As you say, it's not just Channel 4 that the UK indie sector relies upon. Obviously, the BBC, ITV, Sky, Viacom, Discovery, plenty of others. But um, let's just talk about the BBC for a moment, because we have a government mm-hmm. which it seems is also looking to uh, downsize the BBC, some might say, is, is hostile towards it. What are your concerns on that front? Well, I mean, I, th- I think there's always a tension between uh, any government and the BBC, and there's probably more of a tension between this government and the BBC, and you're particularly around uh, some of the editorial issues that the BBC's faced uh, and had to report on recently. So I think that's probably a legitimate tension. I think there'll be pressure on uh, the licence fee settlement um, going forward because of the state of public finances and the state of personal finances. Uh, so I, I think uh, if you want a, a luxurious settlement is unlikely in the current circumstances. Uh, but we hope and we've always asked that the government make sure that you know the, whatever the licence fee settlement is, it's sufficient to enable the BBC to invest in the areas that we all want it to and, and indeed government wants it to. So I think we, you know, there's still a long way to go. Charter, the, you know, the new charter some way off. We're just coming up to midterm review and I think let's see let's see what happens during that. I think we'll get a better feel for direction of travel from that point. What do you make of UK proposals to bring global streamers operating in the territory under the same regulatory framework as, as the nation's broadcasters? Well, the I, I don't think they're going to be brought under the full regulatory framework. If you're a public service broadcaster, you have a whole range of other things which you must meet. So that's origination, that's terms of trade, uh, that's uh, impartiality, a whole range of other things which are contained in your public service licenses. So I'm not quite sure what the government is proposing. I'm not seeing the detail on that yet. Um, you know, some of the streamers already do some age identification using the BDFC scoring. Um, what more will we do? Um, you know, I think we'll wait to see what's actually uh, been proposed. But as you've um, pointed out, I suppose that, you know, the work that, that PACT has done has turned the UK independent production sector into a, a kind of success story because of its, you know, this this framework which allows indies to retain yeah. rights to their programmes for, for global exploitation. But, you know, with the advent of, of global streamers, we're already hearing concerns from other countries like Australia that the kind of deals that they're striking is, is returning the production community to a work for higher sector is that something that you need you, you see that needs attention um well i mean we, we are lucky in the uk because we have the time to trade as a producer i can make something for the bbc or channel 4 and own the ip but my margins on production are going to be very low uh, because prices are is very competitive and i will be looking to make money from selling that from either the format or the ip uh, or the or the finished program um and uh, that's how you work with that on the other hand, uh, I can take a show to one of the big streamers and get a significant margin as a buyout for the license that they want. And I can choose either or both in my business. Um, I think that's a, a, a good position. Now, if the government wants to extend full public service broadcasting requirements onto the streamers active in the UK market, that's a regulatory issue for the government. It's a legislative issue for the government if they want to go that far. As I say, I don't really know how far they do want to go. And of course, if that was the case, then the streamers would be subject to the same rules as BBC, Channel 4, ITV and 5, which would mean there would be a requirement for those streamers to develop codes of practice uh, and then subsequently negotiate terms of trade with us for independent producers uh, working for them. Uh, but that, that's really a matter for government. We're, we're not pressing for that uh, uh, at all. C21's Content Australia On Demand got underway last week with a series of panel discussions and one-on-one interviews exploring how the nation's television business is evolving in a period of unprecedented change. The nation's leading drama commissioners discuss their content strategies and what they're looking for from both the domestic and international markets. 
as well as their increasing reliance on co-financing, the impact of changes to producer tax rebates and their commitments to greater on- and off-screen diversity. ABC Australia Head of Drama, Entertainment and Indigenous Sally Riley spoke to Don Groves. Welcome, Sally. With production budgets rising, your drama slate is underpinned by international pre-sales, co-productions and other collaborations. Perhaps you could talk about your partnerships on such shows as Tropo, The Newsreader, Barons and Freight 2. Yeah, sure, Don. Um, we, we rely on international partnerships a lot and we, you know, it's very important to us to have those international partners, firstly because of the money that they bring, but also for me, I I quite like to have that outside view of Australia from from around the world as well and to, to see how, how, how our shows will play, to get feedback from them as well. And as you say, we have partners who are distributors, broadcasters, studios, so we're always looking for new ways to finance shows and new partners. And we have a fantastic relationships with a number of partners that we work with and creatively I find it quite invigorating to work with them. So Sky in the UK was your partner uh, on uh, the first and second series of uh, Frayed. Did they give you some creative uh, feedback or was it primarily a, a financial deal? No, definitely they are involved in the creative and we we work with them closely. Sometimes the way that these things go, uh, we give individual notes, but the best way to do it is for the partners like, say, us and Sky to combine our notes, share them so that the producers and the filmmakers aren't getting mixed messages. And, of course, sometimes you disagree on things and that's okay, but generally, you know, there aren't there aren't huge discrepancies between the notes that we give, but they've been really great to work with and easy to work with, I've got to say, on Fraid. For international producers who are keen to work with the ABC, can they come to you directly or do you suggest they hook up first with an established Australian producer? It's perfectly fine for them to come to us directly. Um, we kind of encourage that because, uh, you know, it really comes down to the story and the idea for us. So sometimes we can short-circuit things if it's not something for us. Um, we can send them to other places. Ultimately, they will need a local broadcaster to work to with, to work with us um, and we can help with that if the project is right with us. We can help them, you know, introduce them to producers, you know, meet up with them. Um, but really for us, it's about the story and the idea. That's kind of the ultimate first step for us. And it's also great to, to meet people, you know, like even now it's on Zoom. Normally we would travel and go and meet with all, you know, different partners that we were looking for but it's it's great to have that personal relationship with them, them as well so that we know that we're on the same vision for a show but also there's a bit of synchronicity between us and them and what what how they work and how we work because you know it's a long slog working on a drama so you really want to work with people you like and people that you respect and people that you know I guess there's a bit of synergy with. Some producers believe that raising the producer offset um, won't necessarily lead to more production, but it will help cover the the, the uh, increase in budgets, uh, particularly for talent and crew amid the boom we're seeing in international production here. What's your expectation on that? Look, I think I really welcome the 30% offset. It is certainly going to help plug that gap in financing that we often see. There's always that little bit you can't get to. Um, and it, it, it will enable us to hopefully make more projects, not a huge amount, like it might help for one more project, but what it does, it, it actually will give us, as you say, money to be able to cover the, you know, increasing budgets um, and also to give the projects a scale that we want. You know, the, the, you know, the timing of that 30% is is the tricky part for us at the moment because a lot of shows have moved their production schedule to post-July. Um, so there's going to be a bit of a backlog towards the end of the year. And then with all of the streamers and all the external overseas um, productions shooting here, there's a real, you know, we're finding it difficult to crew up shows, you know, line producers are kind of like in 
you know, high demand. So it's tricky. As the crew costs go up, everything goes up. So it's a tough time, really. It's a great thing to have the 30% offset, but it's so busy here that it's it's tough. Um, but it's also positive, right, because um, our crews are working, our crews are getting exposed to new technologies that those huge shows bring. Um, so it's kind of... You know, but it's tough for a little broadcaster like us in Australia to kind of match the money that they're they're paying their crews. Yeah. Uh, in February, the ABC issued new commissioning guidelines covering drama, comedy, children's, factual and entertainment programming aimed at ensuring more diverse faces, voices, cultures and stories are represented on screens. Uh, can you give some examples on how those guidelines are being implemented? Yeah, sure. So there are diversity and inclusion commissioning guidelines and they lay out our expectations on producers when they're bringing a project to us. So, you know, we're asking for a bit of narrative around how they're going to bring diversity to their project in the first instance, you know, when, when they apply to us. Um, then as we go through and we maybe we move to development, you know, the we want to know how they're going to do it authentically, bringing people into the room, bringing on writers from diverse backgrounds, um, bringing new voices into the rooms. I mean, for me, John, this, I've been doing this a long time, sitting in this diversity area, but, you know, in my early career in the Indigenous um, part of the, the industry, this document is really formalising what we have been doing for quite a while. We talk diversity, new voices, at the very start of our process. I'm talking to producers about this stuff from the, the pitch meeting. Yeah. And I've gathered the producers are uh, welcoming this and uh, having no trouble complying with the, the guidelines, both in spirit and, and the letter of the law. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we, we've, we've had really positive response. We've had a really positive response to the guidelines. And I think it, in some ways it's it's much clearer for producers when they're bringing us projects to go, this is actually what we want, this is what we're looking for. It's not the letter of the law because there are all different ways that we can bring diversity to projects. Um, but it is kind of going, it is, I guess it is drawing a line in the sand of if you if you want to get commissioned with us, you really have to follow these guidelines. That's the bottom line. And the ABC has just launched the First Nations Talent Portal to increase uh, Indigenous voices and representations across all its platforms. So from what I read, First Nations media, media creatives, performers, academics and others can register if they want to become uh, potential contributors to ABC content. Yeah, absolutely. And also it's also a way for us to find talent to bring into the ABC. So as part of our five-year plan, the ABC is hugely committed to diversity and inclusion, and we are obviously trying to find staff to bring into the ABC, but this portal allows people in the industry to upload their, their bios, put down what they're looking, you know, what kind of work they're looking for. We can poach them from our side, but also it will allow producers to go and find people as well because it, it, there's a rush on, on creatives from, from diverse backgrounds. It's going to be a boom really soon. The ABC is increasingly focusing on the streaming platform iView, which uh, connects with digital viewers who either don't watch uh, linear television or, or who are a couple of decades younger than your traditional ABC viewer. Yeah. So you often commission just for iView, and a recent commission was the Reverend Comedy Superwog, which is now in its uh, second season. How's that looking? It's looking even more fantastical than the first season. They're so irreverent, those guys, um, but we love them. I, I guess the thing to say for us is that we like taking risks. We, we champion risk. And for me, you know, it's not our average viewer's cup of tea, but for us it was, it was a way to experiment with, um, with iView. So iView is our um, screening platform a digital platform, which, you know, of course we are moving towards in the future. Everyone is thinking about how they, they can become digital. But what, we, what we're going to do with, uh, with uh, Superwog this time is the boys, the guys who, who um, uh, Theo and Nathan, who are the Superwog team, um, they have a massive platform on uh, YouTube. So the plan is, and I don't know if this is, just as an aside, Dan, I'm not sure if this is public yet, but maybe it is, um, we are going to launch the first episode on YouTube on their platform. 
and then we're going to push the rest of the episodes to iView. So it's a way for us to um, see if we can bring younger viewers to iView, um, see if they'll come, see if they'll stay, and hopefully we'll have some content there that will help them stick around for a bit. I mean, the way that we're commissioning, we're looking at programs from all angles. So we really need projects to work on our um, broadcast platform, but also on iView for us. Not every project has to do both things, but the majority of them do. So we're, we're constantly, you know, there's that real fine balance of keeping our, our older audience engaged, trying to bring newer new people to the ABC, but also to iView. There is a bit of a difference in audiences between iView and our broadcast audience. There is a crossover, uh, don't quote me on this, but it's around 20% where, you know, people go to catch up. Um, You'd like but, that to be higher, I assume. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Because yeah. iView's been, been growing and drama is one of the big drivers for us on iView. Um, but the declining broadcast hasn't quite caught up with the increase in um, iView yet. So that's the kind of the gap we're trying to fill. Um, and it's all part of our five-year plan to move, of us moving to digital. And we know we're not alone in that. We know that, you know, all kind of public broadcasters around the world are, are doing the same thing. And so Superwog is an experiment. It's a show that I love. Um, and, you know, fingers crossed, people come to it. It's a six-part series from Princess Pictures. Will all six episodes drop at the, at the one time? Yes, I think so, yes. Another, I know another show that you really were happy about was Wakefield, the, the drama from Jungle Entertainment and BBC Studios set in a psychiatric hospital in the Blue Mountains outside Sydney, starring yeah. Brit Rudy Darmalingham as a psychiatric nurse. It was an unlikely premise, but it really resonated with your viewers. Yeah, um, I... I really love that show and it has really resonated for us. The Ivy numbers are looking really fantastic and uh, I've got to say that it was one of the most fun shows I've worked on because because of the topic. I learned a lot about mental health but also because it's, um, you know, it uses dance, it uses music, it uses a bit of fantasy flashbacks and things like that and um, I think our audience is really engaged with it on you come to it thinking that you're coming into a psych ward and, oh, it's going to be dire and dark, but it's not. It's actually funny, heartwarming, heartbreaking and with a lot of tap dancing thrown in, Dom, what, what more could you want, you know? <laughs> when, when, Kristen, when Kristen said, Kristen Dunphy, the creator, said to me, oh, yes, and then, you know, there'll be tap dancing and there'll be flashbacks and there's singing and there's a, a bug in the ear of, the guy, which is Come on Eileen, the song Come on Eileen, I'm like, oh, I think you got too many tricks there. And we, you know, we, and the form is really different. It gets told by, um, from different points of view of the characters. But in the end, I kind of went, okay, let's, let's try it. And the scripts came back and they were amazing. And we just backed her all the way and backed her and the team all the way with that, because it's like, let's take a risk on this. And I'm really happy with the results. So how many drama pitches would you get in an average month or so? Oh, I'm probably getting about four or five a week, I'd oh. say. People how do you decide? Yep. Oh. How do you evaluate them? Well, um, sometimes people pitch in person or, you know, across across um, the internet. Um and generally they're, they're kind of established producers, you know, or, or newcomers that, you know, young people. Um, I'll have a conversation with them. Then we we have a system in place where I have a team of EPs and development managers where we get a, a couple of people to write um, an assessment for us. Then we all sit around and discuss those projects. And because for me it's important to get other points of view on, on, on a show um, I have members of my team who've been at the ABC longer than me, so they know if something has been done before, if it's been pitched to us before, those kind of things. Um, we have some younger members of our team who bring a different perspective, so we will sit around and talk about it. We have a monthly meeting where we do that, and then eventually, you know, we'll, we'll kind, of, kind of come to a consensus, but sometimes... Um, 
you know, I have to make the ultimate decision, but we do look at it from all different angles and everyone has a say, which is really great, but ultimately I will go yes or no. It's a democracy till you make the decision. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know. It's tough. But, you know, I really do listen to them because, uh, you know, I have... I have put a couple of things into development in my time when I first started at the ABC and kind of went against the the wave of everyone else and they didn't work. They were right. So I do really listen to them now. But sometimes I'm just like, no, we've got to make this show. So what do you see as the biggest opportunity for ABC drama and the wider Australian drama industry over the next year or so? Well, I think the biggest opportunity at the moment is, is the way the world is looking at diversity at the moment. I think the biggest opportunity at the moment is for diverse film and television makers, actors, writers, crew to get a break into this industry. Um, And I think it will transform the stories that we tell and it will transform what audiences watch. And hopefully, Don, in my, you know, rose-coloured glasses, will change the world. Because for me, I've been doing this for a long time and in the Indigenous area, and I always believe we need to... um, tell stories from other other cultural voices and other other places and other people and not to get them to not be the other. And for us at the ABC, it's all about putting Australians seeing themselves on screen. And, um, you know, it's about risk-taking. I think if you take risk on people, young people, then you will find or, or new people with new voices, you, you'll find find stories that we haven't seen before. And for me, that's really exciting. We'll find new ways of talking about life, about how we are in Australia, what our communities are like. And for me, that's that's kind of the most exciting thing going forward. Sally Riley speaking with Don Groves as part of C21's Content Australia On Demand, which got underway last week. You can catch plenty more from the virtual event by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find interviews we've aired this week with execs including Foxtel Executive Director of Television Brian Walsh, Network 10 Head of Drama and Executive Production Rick Mayer, Screen Australia Head of Content Sally Kaplan and many others. That's all for this episode. There'll be more on C21 FM from Monday and from the podcast next Friday. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 